Hey everybody, welcome to Shitty Book Reports, where the reports are shitty, but the books are not. I'm Trevor Clifford, this is Mark Gagne. How are you feeling today, Mark? I feel like Special Agent Dale Cooper making the switch to decaf. How are you feeling? I don't know the reference, but I'm excited to hear it, and uh, <laughs> I, uh, I am a beached whale about to explode. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> I just ate like a lot. I made the stupid mistake of eating a lot for breakfast, and I also ate like not breakfast food. I'm too ashamed to even admit what I just ate for breakfast, so that's oh, why okay. I'm disgusting. Greasy. Okay. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> so what, what? what's Dale Cooper? Oh, Twin Peaks. Oh, 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 oh. I, d- yeah, I, d- yeah. I actually do know that. I just forgot the name. I've Yeah. He's obsessed with coffee. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, and I think if he switched to decaf, if he switched <laughs> to decaf, he'd look at it with a little bit less enthusiasm. Like, it's a damn okay cup of coffee <laughs> not excited all right so you've prepared a mystery intro for i know nothing from which we are about to journey yeah so i was just I was trying to think of a way to start off the show this week and my thought process was basically what'd be a, an easy thing for us to talk about for you know 10 minutes or whatever mm-hmm. so we have a lot of like book related wells we can pretty much always draw from like the type of stuff we just you know been bullshitting about for like a dozen years or whatever but today i thought we could chop it up on the topic of uh the famous graphic novel slash movie akira what do you think about that yeah that sounds good to me (laughs) uh so i mean yeah i would call this i mean at this point in literary history too like graphic novels are something to be uh you know, recognize like, you know, that's what people always say about the Watchmen, about how time put it on like the list of 100 best novels or whatever. Yeah. And that was like sort of a revolutionary act. But what Mark is referring to is our common bonding obsession with Akira, which is the six volume manga, Japanese manga by uh, Katsuhiro Otomo and the subsequent animated film what what year was the film i think it was like 89 the or something 88 88. Film's 88 and yeah so so for those who aren't familiar with it and i hope it's not too many of you because it's you know it's a damn masterpiece in, in both forms but yeah six volume series from the 80s it came out over uh over several years and i uh, i think shonen jump or one of those magazines uh one of those serialized manga it, magazines. yeah yeah in japan so it's set in neo tokyo it's around like this time like it's it's a, around like 20 i think the beginning 2019. says 2019 or something like yeah that. which yeah. everyone uh, a tangential thing that like a bunch of nerds myself included freaked out about is that the plot of akira has a little bit to do with the olympics being in tokyo at that time and actually the olympics are going to be in tokyo in 2020 so when that first came out people were like akira is true yeah. <laughs> so so prescient yeah um that's awesome though i wonder if they they you know rallied to get it but anyways so yeah set in neo tokyo it's 20 20 years 20 plus years after the city was destroyed by like a mysterious kind of explosion and so the story follows like a teenage biker gang who they get caught up in this huge web of rival gangs they got uh, involvement with like the military resistance groups and secret government projects centered around uh, a few individuals with like psychokinetic abilities so it's a really it's a really intricate story it's like a sci-fi cyberpunk uh, it's just it's just really cool, but yeah, Trevor and I have been obsessed with this for what feels like forever. Yeah, I don't know. I like. I think the movie came first. I think that we had both kind of seen the movie, and it's one of those movies. Actually, my story of the of my first viewing of Akira is it's actually really good. Um, my mom would never know this story, which is like a very <laughs> it's like a big rarity that she wouldn't know. But by and by I was like a pretty good kid like by the books and everything like that but um my first viewing of Akira I actually snuck out of my house at night and I went to our friend Brett's house and we watched Akira for the first time and I was like (laughs) and I you know it was like I was being bad like I I basically like I forget what I did but I managed to kind of like start the car or no I think our, our mutual friend of ours picked me up so I just managed to uh to slip out the back door and then come back home and she never knew. Nice. 
that that's was a good, that's a good first viewing an act of teenage rebellion culminated <laughs> with a viewing of akira which was absolutely i think it's i think i probably understood it less on that first viewing than i have you know after reading all of the all of the graphic novel and also seeing the movie like a hundred times yeah i can't remember the first time i saw it but i, I wrote like a little bullet list here of different things i thought about or you know the the things that came to mind when I thought about Akira or conversations that you and I have had. And so one thing I think, because it's a, it's a huge manga series, like that's thousands of pages probably combined, but the thing that really makes it kind of, or one thing that makes it cross over to like the world of literature is, uh, and then we talked about this a lot is that Otomo, like he has a really unique use of uh, the literary like device of onomatopoeia. Like he's, yeah. <laughs> really crazy with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I remember this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, with, throughout um, onomatopoeia is, like, when, you know, Batman, when he punches someone, it says pow, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but but Otomo, I mean, at least the English translation from, like, from Otomo into the English versions, the, uh, the action bubbles are absolutely out of this world. <laughs> you know, I, I never thought of that, that, it is a translation and I wonder, hmm, is it just translating letters or, or like, is it a translation of a sound? That would be an interesting it's thing strange. to investigate because I bet you like some of those bubbles and the way that they sound or were translated into English definitely leads a, like a different mood. Like if it was more somber in Japanese, that would be a different like thing entirely. Cause some of the chase scenes and some of the great action scenes are, um, more like lighthearted in a way because of those yeah. crazy um crazy onomatopoeia bubbles yeah i'm trying to think of some like i just remember one there's stuff like rack or something that'll be like yeah. r and a bunch of a's and a k and yeah. like uh just random action scenes and i I'll, i definitely remember because it's like very heavy uh, about like motorcycles and stuff so instead of like the classic vroom like that v-r-o-o mm -hmm. you know he throws an A in there, V R A O O M, and that A does some heavy lifting with the. Um, <laughs> <sound>. yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, I wonder so yeah, what the I wonder what the Japanese. Um, I wonder if the, if they would say the same thing, like oh, it's like got exaggerated characters and stuff like that. Yeah, um, I'll have to look into that. Yeah, I mean, I have a I have like a really deep history with the Kira too in terms of seeing it on the big screen. Have you ever seen it on the big screen? Uh, not a big enough screen. So <laughs> I remember, I've I have a note here that you saw it in IMAX. Yes, I do. I have seen yeah. the I have seen the film in IMAX. Uh, I'm glad that I made it to one of your notes, Mark. Um, <laughs> but I have seen it in IMAX. I saw it in IMAX in London, which is one of the most like what they you know. There's like a big list of oh what the best uh, true IMAX screens are in the world, and the one one of them in London is one of the truest IMAX screens. I saw it there, and I also screened it. I was I was so obsessed with Akira, both the the books and the movie that. Any opportunity I got during film school to report on it, I did. So when people were like, oh, what movie do you want to study? I'd be like, Akira. <laughs> I wasn't even an animation student. But I watched all sorts of uh, of behind-the-scenes documentaries that I like, like were able to rip off YouTube and put them in my college presentations and stuff like that. And there's like a whole... I mean, the production of, of it is really dramatic. Otomo is obviously a, a genius and does all the background work, by the way. He did like every yeah. single background or like a majority of the backgrounds, which is absolutely incredible. And um, and I also screened it at my film, like my film school's cinema club. We had like a thing where everyone could come and be part of like a screening. And I was like, we're showing Akira. I want to see it. And we had, screen. you know, a big movie theater screen, like a 50 foot screen. So it's nice. That nice. was, that's the only Blu-ray I've ever owned because I needed it for one of the screenings. And I was like, it has to be the best version possible. <laughs> Perfect. I think they showed it once. Uh, the biggest screen I saw it on was they had it on a projector, like something in grad school, someone had set it up where like uh, they just played it in like one of the labs or whatever, but random, like a lot of people showed up and, Pretty random assortment of people. It was cool. It's a really, it is a fantastic film. Like when I saw it in London, I brought my um, 
fiance with me and when and we were actually like one or two minutes late for the beginning so she actually she missed the title sequence which i'm really pissed off about but uh the title sequence is just so iconic one of the best ever and um and when we walked in it was it was already the bike chase the first bike chase scene like through you know like the first scene basically yeah and it was just this wall of light and imax like it was so massive um (laughs) And, uh, yeah, uh, Akira, one of the best movies. And honestly, I would put it up there with Watchmen. Like it's, it's very, the actual manga itself is very, um, it's kind of more about that very common Japanese theme of like industrialization, ruining the world and stuff like that. There's a lot of, there's a lot of really complex drawings of like buildings being destroyed and kind of like humans living among the machines that they've trapped themselves in. Yeah. I wouldn't call it. It's not like post-apocalyptic. It's not post-apocalyptic. It's more just like uh, post disaster it's not yeah it's like near future sci-fi it's obviously like they say about godzilla and lots of other um major japanese works it's obviously influenced by the massive influence that the detonation of an atomic bomb had in in their country so you know like the the very beginning of the story is like an atomic bomb gets detonated in tokyo and this is the aftermath and stuff like that so (laughs) um yeah so uh yeah, so if if you know the story or if you don't, I mean, if you go, if you Google Akira, like one of the first things you'll see uh, is the iconic motorcycle that is uh, owned by like, owned or rather stolen by the main character uh, Kaneda. And funny story about that fucking bike that I wanted to bring up on the pod. Uh, so Trevor. Uh, do you remember when we had to play rock, paper, scissors against each other because we found yeah. <laughs> like a, a plastic toy version of that bike at a comic book store? <laughs> yeah, Mark had visited me in New York City. Shout out to Toy Tokyo, which is a pl- I bring people there. If we're visiting New York, I bring people to Toy Tokyo because it's such a cool little New York institution toy store. And we found a... a a mid-sized plastic replica of the Akira bike, which was one of the only Akira toys they had in the whole store. And then we had to play rock, paper, scissors for who would get it. You remember who won? Mark won. Yeah. <laughs> I have that thing. It's, on, it's up on my bookshelf. Uh, that might have been the nerdiest thing. One of the nerdiest things I've ever done. I mean, I won the right to buy a toy. <laughs> uh, I had to duke it out. In a contest of wits. <laughs> did we do best two out of three or just one yeah. quick shot? Oh, I think we did best two out of three. Uh, I'm still in agony <laughs> about it. You know, it's also really like what's really crazy is that there's a section I've been lucky enough since then to visit Japan and Tokyo. And there's a section of Tokyo where there's like a lot of toys everywhere and stuff. But to be honest, I did. I thought I was going to be like in Akira heaven with like models and f- toys everywhere and like everything. But I think that they've moved on. Like I was in one shop that was like, you know, all those Gundam models and like all the Dragon Ball Z stuff and stuff like that. And I was like, where's all your Akira shit? And uh, the the attendant was like, I don't know. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. And I was like, Akira? Like, I, I had tra- I wasn't like screaming at him in English either. A friend of mine was translating, but he was like, no, nah, I don't think we have like that much. And I'm like, okay. Yeah, I think the ones that took over are, it's like a... Even it's like a it's like the Netflix like thing, you know, yeah. where like you need a million episodes of something that right. has more value to it. Like either that that series, uh, One Piece, yeah, and, One uh, Piece, Bleach, those Death are Note. huge. The yeah, Death Note yeah. is huge too. So yeah, I mean, but Akira will never die. It's a classic film. It's a classic manga. I wouldn't be surprised because. I wouldn't be surprised if somebody sets up something for the 2020 Olympics that has to do with Akira, like. And honestly, I mean, this is holding out way too high of hopes, but doesn't the country who hosts the Olympics do like a really elaborate introductory ceremony every time? Yeah. Yeah. So like, what if Japan put Akira into their like, into their thing? Like just a minor reference to it or something, you know? Yeah. Because the that, one, that is the, weird though. The ones that they do are the the uh, Olympic opening ceremonies that countries do are really elaborate, and people have been talking about the the twenty twenty Japanese one for. A while. Apparently, they're doing like really like techno fireworks and stuff like that, like really crazy shit. Yeah, that would be interesting because I mean, it actually is. It's 
pretty involved in the story like as a location yeah like the, the final the, the, the final climb yeah. like third act and the final sort of battle that, that's the climax of the film is within an olympic stadium yeah maybe so, they'll recreate that yeah uh akira number one yeah <laughs> I had a bunch of other I had a bunch of other notes on this, but you know people are probably going to hate this if they don't know Akira. So. <laughs> Sorry, figure... welcome to the Akira cast. There's it's definitely out there. There's somebody doing a podcast out there about it. Yeah. Um, so it's the episode 22, which means my I book go first with my book this week. If you're a new listener to the podcast, uh, the the structure of it is every week me and Mark me and Mark bring one book. Uh, we I don't know which book he's going to do. He doesn't know which book I'm going to do. And uh, we do a little shitty book report on it. So here we go, episode 22. Um, this is going to come out of nowhere for you, Mark, because this this is, we're at the point now where the podcast is somewhat folding back in on itself. In other, in other words, this podcast has now had a definite effect on what I choose to read. So, so far, we've just done stuff where it's like, oh, I'm reading this book, or I have read this book, and I really want to talk about it. But this week... I am doing a book that is purely, I would never know about this book at all if it wasn't for the podcast. And I am doing a book called The Shadow of the Torturer by a man named Gene Wolfe, published, oh, nice. published in 1980. Um, so, uh, Mark, tell me a little bit about Gene Wolfe. I'm going to throw it back to you for <laughs> This is how oh, shitty my uh, book report is. Tell me about Gene Wolfe. Uh, he worked as a, I think he served in one of the wars. He was like a mechanical engineer. He worked in uh, like the automation industry for a long time. He had a hand in the device that cooks Pringles. Nice. Uh, and then he, then he quit to uh, write full time and he did like sci-fi and a little bit of fantasy writing. He wrote Peace, which I covered uh pretty early on yep month, months ago and then yep. he actually he died uh he died maybe a month and a half ago right yeah very recently he died in 2019 um so yeah i, I basically turned to you mark to, to give a quick summary of his biography because what i read this week by gene wolf is kind of more in the wheelhouse of his larger body of work which was i wrote i read the shadow of the torture which is the first book of a series of fantasy novels that is in total four books that are titled the book of the new sun and uh the reason why i didn't delve too much in his biography is because i was going back to my roots of kind of i wanted to read a fantasy novel i wanted to be a little bit of a nerd for a second and i basically just said go back to my roots in reading and actually I can also say the one of the major reasons I chose this for the podcast as well is a shout out to early community contributors of ours on Twitter. Um, there is a podcast called Al Zabo Soup, uh, hosted by Phil and Metz, and they are Twitter at A L Z A B O Soup S O U P, and they kind of early on in our existence as a podcast i said i want some really like legit fantasy what i want i think it was when we were talking about book covers or something and i do you remember me saying like i want something as good as token i want something yeah you know really like dense and good um but it's still within i a remember fantasy the setting. suggestion yeah so yeah so i took that suggestion i ordered the book used on amazon as we all should support your local bookstores or small used bookstores yeah, you know what's funny? That's that's actually been sitting in my like uh wish list since that point. I okay, yeah. It. Well, I can yeah, I, I can advise you uh, the most popular uh, published editions are from I forget what the imprint is. It says Orb on the spine, but there are two collections that are called Shadow and Claw and something else. And it's basically they they've collected like it's four books total, but they've collected it into two books. I was really confused when I went out and wanted to buy just the shadow of the torturer because like almost no single prints of these books exist anymore. So when I was looking it up, I was like, how good can this thing be if, uh, <laughs> if it's like out of print, but really they've just collected it into two, two books. Um, okay. I think that there's a reason behind that and I'm going to get into it. I'm glad that we skipped over Gene Wolfe's biography. We kind of already covered him in a different podcast. So go check that out. Um, but this is a fantasy world developed by him that I'm going to give major kudos to like Al Zabo Soup and the podcast, the guys Phil and Metz who recommended this book. 
they were definitely satiated my thirst for something that's as legitimate literature as as Lord of the Rings and probably trying to be even more legitimate. I think that Tolkien is like a master storyteller who wants to tell you a great story, but Gene Wolfe is a probably not as good a storyteller, but he's more interested in sort of humanity and how the mind works and how emotions work and putting that on top of a fantasy setting is something that i've never really seen before in this strong of a form um some of the detractors that i would say about the the book is that and i read this um a a little bit of background on it as well um i it's known that gene wolf completed the outline of the entire four books before he started writing and in a sense i feel that when i'm reading because this was a very short read i read this all in one week since our last podcast completed it's 200 page book um with not like small print or anything it's easy to get through but there is a sense throughout that you're only reading 25 percent of a full story which I kind of took issue with that because if each book is, you know, some, I just, each book doesn't stand on its own is basically what I would say. Like I finished the first book and I was like, well, that wasn't, you know, it's clear that this was sort of like one sweeping novel to him from the beginning. And then it's just like, okay, this got to 200 pages. So let's publish this one. Um, okay. That was something that I kind of like irked me a little bit, but the, that's probably my biggest attraction from it. But my biggest positivity is that just this is a form of fantasy that I don't think I've ever read before. Um, I'm spending too much time on the esoteric kind of like concepts behind the book. But the actual plot is something quite brutal. Um, the first book is called Shadow of the Torture. Your main character is a guy named Severian. And he's growing up in a world that is not really, po- it's so post-apocalyptic that it's almost like the world has been destroyed and then reborn again. Like the old world does exist, but you know, it's like earth is spelled with a U, U-R-T-H and stuff like that. And there's a lot of vocabulary that, um, Gene Wolfe did language research to bring out to the forefront, but also stuff that he just made up. So Severian is a torturer, which basically means that he's growing up in a guild. There's like different guilds throughout this massive city. It's like all takes place in this one city so far. And there's these different guilds, like there's witches and there's mages and there's uh, soldiers and there's the military and there's politicians and stuff. And our main character, and also this is a fantasy novel written from the first person, which was, I've never read that before. I've always read third person omniscient for fantasy novels. So a first person one, is kind of interesting. And um, so Severian grows up in the Torturers Guild. So in this, this is the place where when people get past judgment of sentences of torture or death, they get sent to this particular guild that are raising what they call Carnifexes, which is like people who... Um, you know, complete executions, the executioners, basically. But since it's so normalized to his senses, you know, they all wear black and it's very kind of like H.R. Geiger, post-Gothic, like crazy kind of world and stuff like that. (laughs) Um, Because they're so used to it, I think that uh, Wolf is saying something about sort of like the nature of uh capital punishment and stuff like that you can that's like sort of in the air but it's also interesting you know like some scenes it will be like yeah me and my fellow apprentices we went down to the cells because we had to mop them up from gallons of blood or you know like or i took care of this client whose whose leg was ripped off because we were torturing her and it's sort of like tangential to the actual narrative so you get this really sort of dark and creepy world that is just part of everyday life for Severian. And he's kind of just going forward on a journey that's going to take him out of the city and he's meeting various people. I'm sure you remember from Gene Wolfe's right, like writing style, Mark, he does like stories within stories a lot. Does that ring a oh, bell? Yeah. yeah, that's what Peace was all about. Yeah, so Shadow of the Torture like doesn't really escape that where it's like there's an unreliable narrative. He's traveling through this, um, you know, fantasy city. There's sci-fi elements like they talk about how the moon has been like astroturf. So the moon is green now and stuff like that. Um, 
it makes va- very, very vague references to the possibility that aliens like um, visit from other worlds. It also makes reference to like, there's kind of like a class system. There's like politicians who have flying um, machines that can take them all over the planet, but they are like the lower caste where they're just the workers, the torturers, the mages, like people who are just getting by. Um, and there's just a lot of interesting elements. He goes along and basically just meets different people. He meets, you know, like a classic sort of band of adventurers that kind of pop in and out of the novel as it's, as you know, the, the uh, narrator seems, sees fit. There's also a lot of really good, like forward allusions to the fact that, um, Severian is actually writing this novel from like a diary like perspective. So you know that I don't necessarily love breaking of the fourth wall, but um it works here. It because it's part it's like it's like you're reading a found document and stuff like that. Okay. Um, I mean that that's exactly what piece was. It was yeah, like a sort of a memoir. Yeah. So, so yeah, this is also like a memoir in fantasy form, but imagine all that legitimacy that was brought to peace, but it's just on top of like a fantasy setting. Uh, something I have a question pertaining to fantasy, uh, like the genre in general, like, okay, how, how heavy does it go where it's like creating all these terms or, you know, using this new constructed language yeah. or like how, how, how much does it dive into that? Or is it more, so, what, what drives it into fantasy? Yeah, I mean, fantasy, one of the weaknesses in the fantasy genre for me is a kind of rabid uh, dedication to somebody like creating a glossary of terms that you have to, you know, yeah. turn to the back of the book and be like, what's a Kinta spell and like all that stupid <laughs> shit. That stuff can get really old really fast. And there's been more than one fantasy novel where people are like, yo, check this guy out. And then I do. And I'm like, no, he's like a vocab whore. Um, <laughs> what I would you bring up a really good point, Mark, which I wanted to get to. But Gene Wolfe is very good at being a writer that can give you context clues. So, yes, he does make things up like someone's like one of the like class of people. It's called like Chatelaines and stuff like that. Um but he's such a he's a great writer in in being able to give you context when he does make up those fantasy terms that it actually works pretty well here. The one thing that he's um, kind of on a razor thin margin with for me, it, and I actually wrote down the page number here, page one fourteen of my edition. Um, he does get a little bit too crazy here. The way that he invented some of the animals and some of the um, language in this book is by basically just looking into the past and looking up dead words. So like old words for Latin words for military units and stuff like that are in here. And I singled out a paragraph that I think is just too ridiculous in the way that he did that. And uh, I'll read it right now. Uh, I promise I'm going to get to doing... uh, to reading quotes that are actually good, but since the flow of the podcast brought us here, I'll do the negative stuff first. So this paragraph is, it starts here. Around us, world traffic of every sort, machines, wheeled and wheelless vehicles pulled by animals and slaves, walkers and riders on the backs of dromedaries, oxen, metaminodons, and hackneys. Now now an open fiacre, or fiacre, like our own, drew up beside us. Agia leaned toward the couple it carried and shouted, we'll distance you. Um, all of that stuff, dromedaries, oxen, metaminodons, and hackneys are literally just older words for like tigers, bears. And like, oh, you know, existing like words? existing okay. words that he kind of like found in dead language and stuff like that. Uh, you know, and basically this is like the type of book where it's like, it's not satisfying when you pick up your phone to look for those words. And then it's like, that was, that's like a different word way of saying the word goat, you know, it's okay. like, like calling a, a Bruin instead of a bear or something. Yeah. Yeah. Like, right. Like he's like, he's in like the, it, on that same page, he's like, I could reach over to a group of onagers easily. And then I go and look that up and it's like, <laughs> that's an Asian goat. 
<laughs> and I'm like, who cares? Like, don't like do like that thesaurus shit where you just like, you know, you he's so good at making up his own world that I don't think that he needed to take it to that level. Something that does kind of he does an interesting thing at the very end of the book where he writes an appendix letter that says, hi, I'm Gene Wolfe and I'm translating this from a language like long dead. So basically he's saying like. Some of the terms in here, animal spe- it actually says animal species resulting from biogenetic manipulation and importation of extrasolar breeding stock. Like, he basically makes a note saying this is sci-fi, so chill out. Um, which I liked. I liked that note, but it was still sort of I, like when I, as I was reading, I was like, this is like really lame. So. On to the good stuff. The good thing about this narrative is that he's a great storyteller, and he just he, there's elements of this novel that you're just not going to find in any other fantasy type novel, which honestly makes me really pumped to read the rest of his canon because he wrote so many fantasy books. Like this book gets published in 1980 and then he eventually is like, he writes like all these different series. There's like 10 of them that have, you know, four books each. There's one called the soldier series book of the long sun book of the short sun so honestly, if he's this legit throughout all this fantasy, it's just such a rich world to explore. You know, he won every Nebula Award and Locus Award and, oh, I'm the best. Pu-. Like, he comes up on lists as being the best under, like, Lord of the Rings and the Wizard of Earthsea and then him. So it's definitely super legit. Um so I'm going to read a paragraph right now, um, and I think it's a good juxtaposition and a good example of like how this book is, is the chapter title is called The Lictor of Thrax. So like, that's some fantasy shit, you know, like he just made that up. <laughs> Proud of that. But here's the second paragraph in The Lictor of Thrax. It is, it is said that it is pe- the peculiar quality of time to conserve fact, and that it does so by rendering our past falsehoods true. So it was with me. I had lied in saying that I love the guild, that I desire nothing to, but to remain in its embrace. Now I found those lies become truths. The life of a journeyman and even that of an apprentice seemed infinitely attractive, not only because I was certain I was to die, but truly attractive in themselves because I had lost them. I saw the brothers now from the viewpoint of a client, and so I saw them as powerful, the active principles of an inimical and nearly perfect machine. So it's like... I ain't read paragraphs like that in other fantasy novels. No one is dropping, you know, great things about time and memory and life and stuff like that in, you know, the wheel of time. It's just not like the same thing. Yeah. His Um, prose is excellent. Like I definitely remember reading piece. I I highlighted so many sections, so many like individual sentences and paragraphs. Yeah. Because he's really trippy. It's like there's this, there's, you know, there's this whole fantasy world going on that engages you with a mystery of like, well, you know, oh, what's going to happen? And, how, and you're slowly finding out that they live in, in sort of like a big brother type situation where um, there is, you know, there's a figurehead called the Autark, which, by the way, is an old word for emperor. Ha ha ha. And, <laughs> uh, you know, like stupid shit like that. And then but, uh, you know, as you go along again, I'm just going to read out like a uh, this I think it's great. I actually just noticed while we're doing the podcast that it's great to say what the name of the chapter is versus the paragraph that I read. So this is from chapter, The Flower of Disillusion. So very fantasy-esque. The increate maintains all things in order, surely. And the theologicians say light is his shadow. Must it not be then that in darkness order grows ever less? Flowers leaping from nothingness into a girl's fingers, just by as by light in spring they leap from mere nothingness into the air. Perhaps when night closes our eyes, there is less order than we believe. Perhaps, indeed, it is this lack of order we perceive as darkness, a randomization of the waves of energy like a sea, the fields of energy like a farm, that appear to our deluded eyes, set by light in an order of which they themselves are incapable to be the real world." So, like, again, another great example of I've never read something like that, like the order of light and darkness and reality inside of a fantasy novel about a guy who is growing up to be an executioner. So, yeah, basically, you just you follow the the main character, Severian, and his group of, you know, wily characters throughout a novel that I I know I'm going to continue to read. But uh, again, I was a little frustrated that it did. 100% feel like I was only reading 
one quarter of an intended story. So there wasn't there wasn't as much of a beginning, middle, and end as I would want. But I guess that that's going to be resolved as I read the rest of the series, which I definitely am. So highly recommended. Thanks again to Lazabo Soup, the guys on the podcast. They, through their podcast, if I do a little plug for them, they actually do a weekly podcast where they go chapter by chapter through the Book of the New Sun. I think that they're like nearing the end of the series right now. Um, oh, damn. I and I'm going to... What's the structure? Yeah, and I'm going to check cool. out um, the stuff that goes as far as um, The Shadow of the Torture because, uh, you know, it's cool to hear other people's thoughts about it and there's a lot of stuff to find in there. So check it out. Nice. I mean, that's a good enough having, uh, you know, knowing that you're going to continue is a good enough recommendation right there. Or that's yeah. a good. Yeah, for sure. It's The characters are great and I want to know what happens. There is some foreshadowing in the book of what does end up happening to Severian, but I got to know how it gets there. Nice. So I know you liked it, but I got someone here on Amazon uh, who gave it one star. Oh, shit. Yeah, I didn't even look up my one star <laughs> review. Please, please got, go ahead. I got one right here. Gretchen Winkler uh, says, prose more purple than Lovecraft. Never have I seen an author more eager to spew superlatives onto a page. Whenever possible, he uses multiple words when a single would do. He wore a long, double-edged knife. So, a dagger, then? He makes up words for no reason. It's such a signature part of the series, I can't be bothered to find an example. <laughs> he doesn't seem to do everything possible to make reading the book unpleasant. The main character tortures for a living. The setting is dank and filthy at all times. Nothing is described in enough detail to actually entice the reader, but rather the surface of everything is described as verbosely as possible. I'm going to skip to the end. It's a long one. <laughs> this is the most pretentious, unreadable thing I've ever encountered. The quality of a plot line or world are irrelevant if the presentation is this awful. It wouldn't matter how, nutri how nutritious a meal is if someone sprayed it with skunk extract. You wouldn't eat it. <laughs> whoa skunk extract also Ooh. known as the shadow of the torture so she yeah. was obviously on the opposite side of what i started to get a little bit sensitive about some of his kind you know i wouldn't say that a long double-edged knife needs to be called you know one thing or whatever but um <laughs> some of his thesaurus stuff was just a little bit too intense um the one thing i didn't mention is that it'll be the final thing i say about the shadow of the torture and the book of the new sun in general is uh, again, I'm sh I'm showing my nerdiness, but if anyone out there is listening, uh, re has ever played the games called Torment, this game, this setting kind of remind. I wouldn't be surprised that the people who made the computer game Torment uh, had read the Book of the New Sun because it's. I felt like it was in the same world. Um, so, continue. That's cool. <laughs> what do you got going on this week, Mark? All right. Uh, I'm going to start with a question for you. How many songs by Cat Stevens can you name? I can only, I just don't, I only know his name. I think he was in some important bands and stuff <laughs> like that, but I don't really know. No, solo artist, but you know, it's all right. I put you on the spot there. Um, it's got a bunch of songs, Wild World, Where Do the Children Play? Those are two big ones, but okay, yep. he's got us. um, well, fun facts, first of all, before I jump into it. Uh, did you know that Peter Gabriel played the flute on one of uh, Cat Stevens' song when he was 19? Interesting. That's cool. Yeah, it's uh, Catman Do by Cat Stevens. Check it out. Um, but anyways, my book this week... Uh, sorry for putting you on the spot, but <laughs> my book this week shares a name with another Cat Stevens song um, off of the T for the Tillerman album. Uh, it's called Miles From Nowhere. Miles so from nowhere. So it's Styles yeah. from nowhere. Miles from nowhere. Did you steal that's, it from that? That's where I took it from. Yep, oh, okay. Yep. So there's another game that we play on the podcast called Styles from nowhere. This is Miles. Wait, from what nowhere. game was that again? <laughs> Styles from nowhere is the one where we just pick random books and we read like a random page to see if we think. Oh, you yeah, can, yeah. You can guess it, which we actually found is easier than we thought it would be. Oh, maybe we'll do. Maybe we'll do that next week. Um, but yeah, I knew about the song. That's why I used it for the game. Didn't know about this book, but I found it, found out about it this week. And, you know, it's a, it's a devastating read. It's very sad and very raw. So it's from the uh, Korean-American author Nami Moon. Mm -hmm. And while it's not 
autobiographical it kind of it does capture like the emotions that she experienced growing up in new york in the 80s so like you know the setting is very close to her life and like the things that happen are very close to her life but i mean it's 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 still a work of fiction okay um so i want to read just a quick intro to an interview with nami by the chicagoist website circa 2009 which is when this book came out Okay. I don't, they do a much better job introducing than I would. <laughs> okay. To say writer Nami Moon has led an interesting life would be a gross understatement. Moon was born in Seoul, South Korea, and moved to the States with her family when she was young, growing up in the Bronx. A teen runaway, her jobs have included being a bartender, a photojournalist, a street vendor, an Avon lady, and a criminal investigator. After getting her bachelor's from UC Berkeley, she got her MFA from the University of Michigan, where she won a Hopwood Award for fiction and the Farrar Prize for drama. Her work has appeared in the Iowa Review, Tin House, and the Evergreen Review. Now, having recently moved to Chicago to teach fiction writing at Columbia College, she has released her first novel, Miles from Nowhere. Set in 1980s New York, specifically the Bronx, Miles from Nowhere follows the exploits of June, a Korean teenager who runs away from home at the age of 13 living in shelters on the street and in various apartments and lofts. Moon takes, on a, takes us on a gritty yet poetic journey as June bounces between men, drugs, and various jobs. Told in an episodic style that jumps forward in time with each chapter, we see glimpses of June's life as she tries to find her way and come to terms with the harsh reality of the streets and is haunted by her fractured relationship with her parents. It's a dark novel, but one that ultimately gives hope for redemption. Mm. So that's exactly what it is. You know, it's a episodic, like it's a series of vignettes about this girl, June. And it starts when she's 13, um, goes till she's 18. And, you know, it's just every chapter involves some sort of just harrowing experience that, you know, it seems almost too terrible to have happened. But you know that, you know, if it hasn't happened to this author, it's happened to someone else. So it's mm -hmm. just... Um, a lot of gut punches and that sort of thing. I don't really want to get into the specifics, uh, but of the, you know, the, the exact stuff that has happened, but it's very dark, you know, June, she's, she's 13. She's just on her own and, you know, immersed in this, in the world of crime and, and drugs. And she's making bad decisions and, you know, clinging to bad influences and just scraping by where everything she touches like turns to shit and you know the characters around her just sort of come and go so it's it's hard to get too involved with anyone other than the main character but it you feel so much for what is happening and you just get frustrated when she can't mm -hmm. uh, pick herself up right. or you know she makes the wrong decision um, she's a very strong, very strong character, though, and a lot of times it feels like she should be broken by some of these experiences, but she like you know carries on, uh, and most you know most often she accepts her horrible circumstances without real anger or emotion. And, you know, it's either you think either it's due to like the drugs that she's on or the the way that her life has gone up to that point. So yeah, she gets involved in in drugs and and prostitution at very young age and. She can't go back to her parents. Her 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 family is just sort of broken. Her um her mother uh, is just completely out of her life, and her her father doesn't really want anything to do with her either. Um, but you know, there's a lot of scenes and visuals from this book that I don't think I'll forget anytime soon. Like very very vivid stuff. It's very fast paced and sometimes you just have to stop for a second and go like, oh, damn, that was that was too much. Uh, like I said, I don't want to give away too much, but I, I will go into one. There's one section where she's, you know, she's strung out with her like junkie boyfriend and um, they're eating like KFC or something. And, and they, <laughs> they see like a stray a stray dog and. Uh, she wants to feed the dog and, and the boyfriend's like, no, nah, no, you shouldn't, shouldn't do that. And uh, she does it anyways. And they show up the next day and the dog is just, you know, bleeding, like dead on the ground with blood coming out of its mouth, just the, <laughs> like chicken bones, like tore up its insides and everything. 
Um, this book sounds like a real upper. Oh yeah, oh yeah. It, it's <laughs> it's it's very very dark. Um, but you know, a very very quick read though too. It's like cl- it's close to three hundred pages, but it's um, as it was like the book I had, the edition I had is very small, larger larger print. But anyways, in in reading this book, because of all the deeply personal and invasive experiences in it, I started thinking about a little bit about what I mentioned before, like the fine line between fiction and memoir. Mm-hmm. Like I think in some cases, memoirs have more, may, maybe have more fake elements than a memoir-ish fictional book would have. Like, what do you think about that? You know, I think there's a really good quote. I forget who said it, but there's a general sort of quote in society for um, the only truest form of fiction is autobiography. Like when someone is kind of writing from just one perspective, is it like truly valid or is it mostly fiction because people just make things up in their heads? Um, Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's a, but that's also just, I think that that's something that we have to live with as, you know, like the limits of, of how you can express yourself, but it's definitely, there's like a scale of from memoir to, to autobiography, to fiction, to, you know, to beyond. And people kind of land in the gray areas, which it sounds like this this novel does. Yeah, yeah. And, as, you know, it's something I never really gave too much thought to. But, you know, if like if you're going to label something a memoir, like you're going to want to come off looking good, like just because, you know, it, it won't it wouldn't be like too too bad about yourself or you know you know what i mean it, it would or maybe the opposite like or may, you know some people are kind of like draw like some sort of ego thing from being like i did the worst thing you know what i mean yeah <laughs> uh, yeah i mean but also like if you get to call something just you know loosely based off of my life or loosely based off a true story you can sort of sneak the truth in there and keep it sort of vague Mm-hmm. You know, it seems like you'd get more enjoyment out of that or, you know, it would could somehow be less like narcissistic, maybe. Mm-hmm. I bet. I mean, the way that this book sounds, though, I bet you that it's like it's it's to me, it sounds like one of those things where the interview question is how much of this is true. And then, you know, if you could really get down to it, it'd probably be like most of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I don't really know. But anyways, so so Nami Moon, she did. I bring this up because she was asked a similar question to that um, from an interview in 2009 with the San Francisco Met blogs. And her, her response was, it never occurred to me not once to write a memoir. Fiction to me seems far more fun and liberating. And when it's going well, I feel as I have complete control over a beautiful long dream. Luckily for me, fiction is my default mode. I love creating a narrative artifice to better explore directly or indirectly, moments that seem difficult to unravel or articulate. For example, with Miles from Nowhere, I'd say maybe 1% of the book is autobiographical. Yes, I left home at a young age, but I chose not to write about the actual events of my own life as a runaway. Instead, I kept those actual events in a reserve of sorts and used my knowledge of them to strengthen the narrative artifice I was creating. Hmm. So she's not as close to, like, she's the opposite of what I thought. Yeah, yeah. So I'd give that the family feud, like, good answer, good answer. <laughs> good answer. She did a good, good job answer. with that. <laughs> good answer, like, but you're a, an idiot. <laughs> that's a great. That's a great. That's a great answer to that sort of question. I thought. Um, anyways, yeah. Um, that's more more to think about. I might check out some more type of uh, fictional sort of memoirs like that. I think that's pretty cool. Um, yeah. Anyways, Miles from Nowhere, I, I recommend this book for anyone who needs a jolt to appreciate their lot in life. You know, um, it's, it's incredibly dark and in just the circumstances. And it reminded me a lot of this movie. Well, it remind people a lot of a lot of different movies, a lot of different stories. I think that's a there's a common thread there uh, with, you know, drug problems and running away from home and, and living on the streets and that sort of thing. But to, it reminded me a lot of this movie I saw a few years ago called uh, Heaven Knows What. Mm-hmm. And it has a similar story, you know, about a homeless heroin addict in, in New York City. It's an incredibly sad movie. Um, it's got um, 
that guy Caleb Landry Jones in it, which I didn't realize until I looked it up today because I, I think I saw the movie like four or five years ago. That's the guy who was the son in Get Out. He was in the oh okay. He was in three. He was in three billboards as well. He was in like mm-hmm. all the movies that were nominated. That, <laughs> that's that round of movies a few years ago. Um, anyways, yeah, check out that movie too. It's it pairs well if you just want to. I guess <laughs> be sad. It's a very dark. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so now on to the one star reviews. Oh, uh, nice. Uh, Kristen says, why do addicts think their stories are interesting, especially addicts with MFAs? I agree that Moon writes lovely prose, but it is all in service of nothing. And then again, I mean, it doesn't seem like she has the background, right? I don't think if she's saying 1% of this story is true, she might not have ever you know, had any drug problems. But anyways, Jill says, yuck, yet again, what a crazy pick. Written by a Vietnamese woman, which is wrong, by the way. This, she's completely wrong. She's <laughs> Korean. I was intrigued. The subject, a homeless 14-year-old girl. The result equals pure dis- disgustingness. <laughs> it's funny how she, like, whoever that user was, they started the comment with, like, yet again. It's like we like we know which, <laughs> which other bad book. I've been fooled again. You know that the last book I read was also like this. What? <laughs> Yeah, sorry, Jill. You know, I'm going to go look up the rest of her reviews now and see if it's just like, oh, again, again. (laughs) Yet again. I'm reading terrible (laughs) books always. (laughs) So, yeah, heaven knows what. Uh, Nami Moon, 2009. Nice. Very good uh, job. Thanks for listening, everybody. This has been another episode of Shitty Book Reports. You can find us every Sunday on Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Instagram, Twitter, at SBR the podcast. You can also email us at uh, sbrthepodcast at gmail.com. Send us your comments, suggestions, corrections, whatever you're feeling. Uh, see you guys the next time.